All right, welcome back to the podcast, Peter Rollins. Hey, it's always so lovely to be back in your backyard doing this. Yeah, you're a you're a crowd fave, and you're one of my faves. For oh, sure. shucks. Um, <laughs> so we're doing an episode on cancel culture, and this is actually like the fourth conversation. <laughs> we're doing that kind of a mega episode. We're oh, right. Together. I thought the other ones had been canceled. No, they. Have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in all the conversations we've had so far, I've been. Like, I knew doing this conversation, it was like murky waters for me. I'm a little biased. I've faced some angry internet people Mm -hmm. more than a couple times. And so I've been kind of like being quiet for the most part and just kind of listening and like, what's what's really going on when we're talking about cancel culture? And so far in the conversations, I mean, we've gone to place, we've talked about how to like, you know, be more positive in our social presence and online and and some of the difficulties that um happen when we commodify humans and and cancel them as though they're just things yeah um when we think in black and white terms of good and bad but i still think there's something unexplored um and i really wanted to talk to you about this topic to see where we would go philosophically with oh, this. Great. but i i I'm wondering, because the the feeling that we, as we've been getting talking about cancel culture and what's underneath that, there's been a feeling that kind of reminds me of what it was like in Christian school, being uh, that rigid feeling of like knowing that you're on the good guy's mm-hmm. side, that feeling of and it it would spill out into silly ways like when we learned in Christian school about the different theories of creationism, these were all acceptable ways, quote unquote, acceptable ways of, of believing. You could believe in the gap theory of creationism. You could believe in the literal seven day. You could believe in like the day age theory of creationism. There's different ways of reading yeah. it, but it was, it was all still based on some sort of biblical literalism. Um, but even within that oh, degree... Oh, yeah. Some of those are right, and some of them are very wrong. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the gap theory? My goodness. If you were a gap theory person, get just get out. Get just out. leave right get now. Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was technically... But there was like a, a rigidness still. And it just makes me wonder, is what we're calling cancel culture and what we're experiencing as cancel culture really just like a level of human development that has finally become writ large in a way with social media and the internet yeah. of not being able to handle dissonance. Yes, yeah, it just amplifies what's already there, yeah, yeah. which is kind of what you would imagine is it can't really cr- create a new human thing, but what it can do is can amplify something mm. of our of our basic subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is from a philosophical because when you texted me the other day, I was like, oh, wow, this is a nice hot topic. Um, And I thought, okay, right. What what do I think's going on? And uh, I thought. Sorry, I can hear the air. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, that happens. But look at that. Even you pros get that. See, when I do the fundamentalists, the air conditioner is always a problem. Yeah. I think I, I, the way I think about it is that we have a wonky ontology. So I would love to talk about that for yeah, a bit. Please. Um, and so for your listeners, you know, an ontology is a theory of being. And uh, so when you talk about ontology and philosophy, you're talking about the nature of a thing. And so 
one of the basic ontologies that we see today uh, that's actually our whole socioeconomic system is based on this is a notion that we are individuals who enter into the social world so at a very basic level you think of yourself you enter into the world you're born and then the family socializes you into the world so it's almost like you're on the side of a swimming pool and then you jump into the swimming pool with everybody else right so you start with an individual you enter into the public arena and this leads us to to see ourselves as separate from the mm -hmm. social world so yeah. it leads us to what can be called have the look and a look is where you look at something and you see yourself as separate from it so either you love something or you hate something or you're just neutrally looking at something but whatever you're looking at you are not entangled in mm. you're separate from now this is a wonky ontology mm -hmm. i would argue right um and a, a better ontology is the idea that actually we start as social in the social world and individuality comes later it mm. actually arises out of our social environment which means we're not individual monads who engage in the world we are already entangled in the world that we navigate so if you look at uh you know even uh, e economists like uh, Milton Friedman or people like Ayn Rand, they all are assuming that we are individuals, private individuals, entering into the world mm. and engaging with mm -hmm. it. So if you take this other view that actually we start off as social beings and our idea of individuality comes later, usually around three months old, and actually goes when we're old, when we're in our 80s and 90s, begins to dissipate again. You take that idea. Or when you take mushrooms or whatever. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. MDMA, <laughs> that kind of stuff will definitely de... <laughs> meditate uh, a lot or whatever the thing is. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk about that, actually. And uh, this that will come up in this, oh, I good. think. Um, is, uh, is if you take the idea, yeah, that you are entangled. In psychoanalysis, this is called the gaze, right? So the look is when you are perceiving the visual field like a neutral observer, like you're almost outside the world looking in. The gaze is a very complicated idea in philosophy, but basically it means that the gaze is the moment that you realize you're enmeshed in what you're looking at. Mm. And uh, I'll give you one example, and I've got loads of examples, but um, I know somebody who uh, attacks a lot of conservative religious people online. So he's always attacking these people. <laughs> um, but then through talking to him and working things through, it turns out, so he ha he comes from a conservative religious place. Mm -hmm. And although he sees himself as looking at that world, right? I'm looking at that world. Yeah. It's a toxic world and I want to get rid of it. What he discovered is the gaze, which is what he realized that his desire is enmeshed in the scene that he is looking at. Right. And so he realized that, that what he's doing is he's fighting a part of himself. There's yeah. something of him in the scene. And in psychoanalysis, this is very key that we have to realize, we have to experience the tr what's called the trauma of the gaze, which is we have to realize how our desire is enmeshed in the things that we hate yeah. and love and even just look at. Yeah. yeah. I'll go one more example. This is a friend of mine who she, um, when she was young, she was always separated from her family. Uh, she stayed with family members. Her her father was always traveling. So she was always experiencing this separation and reunion. And also with the school she went to, she, she had that experience. Now, 
fast forward 30 years and she finds herself in relationships with people who are distant in various ways. And she's like, oh my goodness, why do I fall into relationships that have distance in them? And also her work involves a type of distance. And through analysis, she realized that it wasn't just neutrally that this was happening to her. There was something of her that was in that experience. Something in her was connected with it. And so she thought she was just looking at this. This was just happening to her. But actually, she's entangled in the scene that feels like it's separate. Mm. And that's what I think cancel culture arises from, a wonky ontology of, I am not enmeshed in what I'm attacking. Mm. Whereas actually, we're always immersed in what we love Mm. and hate. Yeah, I love it so much. <laughs> um, I've been reading this book and doing the practices of this book called Existential Kink. Oh, I haven't and heard of it. Sounds good. It's a good title. It's, yeah, yeah. It's a good title, right? And it, it's it sounds very familiar, similar to that. It's like looking at what bothers you, what are patterns in your life that that you think you hate. Yeah, and then like the practice is looking at the underside of that and unconsciously, what sort of pleasure are you getting from that? Yes. You're getting something like you think you hate that feeling of fear, whatever, but it's an arousal. There's a physical arousal that's happening. There's something in your body that's getting a thrill. There's something in your unconscious. Yes. That's seeking something. Yes. And so like the practice is, is going into that and actually allowing yourself to feel the thrill of it. So if if you look at your anger online at that person. What do you get out of that? What are you getting out of your anger? And that's the ego is like, no, look yeah. away. Yeah. Um, but if you look at it, like I actually get to feel good, like pretty righteous when yeah. I get to be really angry at that asshole. Yeah. Cause I know better. I used to be there and I know, yes. and I know, but, and so like you're projecting this, your own process, your own, uh, unconscious shit. Yeah. Uh, onto that person and trying to, distance it from yourself a hundred percent and that it's a type of i like to call it an existential entanglement because funnily enough um in the world of physics they talk about quantum entanglement and it's a similar thing that in existentialism there's a there's this notion that we're not subjects there, we think of the world as subject and object i'm a subject the world is an object and what interestingly at one extreme you know if you go to a barclay and uh, idealism you can say well everything is subject Right. Or if you go to a crude materialism on the other side, everything is just atoms bouncing and, and I am observing the, mater- the materiality of the world. But in this notion of existential entanglement, it's, it's that, yes, there is a subject. Of course, I feel myself as an I and there is, there is stuff objectively out there, but I am entangled. There is this moment, the gaze of where subject and object are intertwined. And if I don't see that, what I do is I distance myself. I think of myself apart from, and this is the root of fascism. And not everybody who does this is not fascist in it directly, but within fascism, there is always a denial of the gaze, which mm. is the distortion that you don't like the toxicity that you don't like is external and can be removed. Whereas this notion of the gaze is you can never get rid of the toxicity of the other because <laughs> it's the toxicity of yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Ah, oh my god i love it yeah we don't cancel you don't see big usually on twitter 
you don't see like big threads about everyone canceling the man that murdered his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that evil is so... I probably haven't dealt with that. Yes, yeah. I probably am not like repressing that and yeah. projecting that in myself. So I see that. Nobody's like canceling um, hyena culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, distant enough. Yeah. And, and there's like even, there's like, say let's say there's 10,000 equally legitimate issues that are in society. We, we, we don't, as you said, we don't engage with them equally. The ones that we pick right. tell us about ourselves. Yeah. And uh, it's very funny when you see people trying to pretend to care about an issue because they want to avoid hypocrisy. And you can always tell the difference between <laughs> someone who cares about an issue and then going like, oh, but it's somebody from this other culture who did that. So I have to pretend to be annoyed at that. <laughs> you know, there's all of this yeah. stuff. But realistically, we realize that what you love and hate and what you observe, you are inside it. You're within it. You're entangled within it. <laughs> yeah. and, and once you notice that the reason why in psychoanalysis that's so important is because once you realize that you change your position with regards to it so you suddenly are like oh that's a part of, I'm, I'm not trying to cancel them I'm trying to cancel myself mm-hmm. right so cancel culture is generally a person is trying to cancel a part of themselves right. through canceling another yeah and so they're going like what is what is the part of myself that I'm not looking at, that I'm what's called projecting onto the other yeah. or interjecting from the other. What is it? You start to look at it and then you can start to have this much more positive and much more beneficial dialogue with both yourself and often with the other person. So it, it actually changes oh. the whole dynamic. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it is so... I mean, progressive Christian Twitter is... Yeah. Such a, it's such a, like... The people that are mad at the evangelicals. And yes. I used to be more in that camp. Yeah. I used to get a lot more mad. And I totally understand because there's always a trauma to the gaze. This is what Lacan would say is that they're like, there's, it's always traumatic to see your own desire interwoven into what you are attacking or loving. It's like, you, you, you don't want to be confronted with that. So it's so much of society is about a disavowal of the gaze. So it's the look, not the gaze. The look is I'm, I'm divorced from what I see because we do want to, we all feel the trauma of the gaze when you go, oh my goodness, I'm, fi- I'm not fighting you. I'm fighting myself. Oh my goodness, I'm fighting yeah. my parents. I'm fighting my relationship with my siblings. Oh. So what's in your psychoanalytic psychoanalytic or or philosophical leanings or preferences what do you do when the or or have any recommendations for when those when that's noticed it's like at the at in the in when the shadow comes to the light and you go oh that's me that's that's my own aversion to the faith that i grew up with aspects of it because i felt foolish or I feel, I feel like it's, it makes me feel righteous. What do you, what then? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, and this is incredible, is sometimes if you create a community where you attempt to help people experience the gaze, um, and by the way, one of the ways of doing that is a community in which one of the only rules is that we stick together no matter how much we hate each other. That's kind of one of those, you know, within reason, right? Within, but if you've got a community, you kind of go like, sometimes you're going to really annoy mm-hmm. me, I'm going to really annoy you, but we'll try as much as possible to stay in the same room. And a community which attempts to help you experience the gaze um, 
in group psychoanalysis, they do this. So for example, a friend of mine, he runs a group and uh, they've got very few rules, right? There's a group of them that come together, but the rules are made by the community. And there's like, oh, I think there's really two rules. One is, you know, don't eat or drink. Don't come in with a can of Coke and drink mm -hmm. while someone's talking. And the other is, I think, don't don't come in late or and don't walk out on anybody. So these basic rules. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is the rules aren't there to be kept. They're, they're there for analysis. So one person comes in and they're drinking Coke. And then you go, oh, you know, why is it you would do that? You know, so the group asks, why would you, you know, why would you do that? <laughs> and then, you know, you discover that that there's something maybe they're annoyed about in the group. And mm. this is their unconscious way of protesting. Mm. And they don't even realize it. They think, oh, I was just eating the sandwich and thought I'd finish it in the group. Mm. But then you discover, oh, actually, no, I'm saying something, you know. Yeah. So a community that experiences the gaze, the thing I was going to say is that sometimes you don't have to do anything. Literally, when you're confronted with how your desire is interwoven with what you're attacking, that can be enough mm. to change your entire way of interacting. Sometimes it often takes more, but sometimes you don't even have to do anything. Like yeah. that's that's the first and last step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The insight is the action. Right. I mean, that's like the young quote, the Carl Young quote of until the unconscious is made conscious, it, it controls your life and you call it fate. That's exactly so as it. as soon as you see it, Yes. That's why in analysis and in depth psychology, it's a talking cure. It's like literally uh, bringing something to the light. There's a beautiful verse in the Bible that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, it's not talking about two plus two equals four. It's talking about the idea that, that we always hide our truth. We always want to repress the truth, hide ourselves from ourselves. But simply knowing the truth is itself what will set you mm. free. Coming to know. So we're always trying to cancel ourselves we're always trying to censor ourselves but when we're able to know the truth of our desire that very act is itself freedom mm. alan watts talks about like if you are the if you are pinching yourself and you want the pain to stop it is this then the moment you notice it's you pinching <laughs> yourself it stops you don't have to take further steps <laughs> yeah. like, how does this pinching ever stop yes like, oh it's me <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> I'm it pinching yeah. myself like imagine here's my here's my vision right is that well so we are in systems that we think we're separate from so it's socioeconomic systems political systems communal systems that we think we're observing that we think that it, whether we existed or not they would continue and to a certain extent that's right because there's millions of people involved in them However, this idea of the gaze is the notion that actually these systems exist insofar as we believe in them. And you not participating, you becoming what I call it, like a, having a different logic of desire, becoming a different, having a different mode of being, right? That in itself isn't just you stepping out of the system. That's you actually changing the system mm. because the system is requiring, you're like a battery, like in the matrix, plugged into the system, giving it your libidinal energy you unplugging yourself from that mode of desire through this acknowledgement actually is very, in a very small way sapping power from that system. And so my vision is for communities that are able to detach, uh, who are able to experience the gaze. If you have enough of those communities across the world, you don't have to do anything. That is a doing. That is a radical political intervention. Mm. That is a rupture. That's an apocalyptic moment. Mm. So, yeah. but you need to be you need a lot of communities so um i've got an idea for how to do that <laughs> all right let's hear well, well this is this is the core of right is that it's very hard to set up new communities 
right? But what if there was already a network of communities that met around the world, hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of them, let's say. And let's say they all met once a week, some of them twice, some of them three times a week. And let's say that people went to them all their life, even brought their kids to them and were married there and died there. And then what if those communities had um, an emancipatory message that's, yes, been covered over and, yes, is kind of like being a bit messed up. But what if you could just kind of bring out that emancipatory message uh, in those communities? Then you already have the network set up. Mm. So my work is, is uh, <laughs> to try to, to <laughs> find... To be a Christian. Yeah, <laughs> is to find if, there's, if there is such a thing as a massive <laughs> network of communities meeting every week. That's amazing. And, and then re-narrate them in this way. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. Whether, I mean, it's a, whether it'll work or not. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's like, what if you could have them having said the words of this emancipatory message, but they just need a little like lens click to. Yeah. Just go. And, <laughs> and you know what? The word reformation is that lens click. Yeah. That's funny. Like, I, I think that basically the lens click is these institutions often. They go through, and a, a, a reformation's weird because nothing changes, but everything changes. So. Nothing like the same language mm -hmm. is used, the same structures, and yet everything is reinterpreted in a slightly different way. Yeah. And so a lot of my work as religion has tended to be or a completely upside down way. Upside, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or yeah, um, the, the Mark said about Hegel that Hegel was on his head, so he wanted to turn yeah. him back on his feet. So yeah, <laughs> that's that's the that's the plan. Yeah. 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 I mean, I look, and then you, uh, that ha that happened for Jesus for me, but it had to happen mm. through like Eastern religions. Yes. Um, yeah. and like Ram Dass and the, all of a sudden they were talking about Jesus and I was like, Oh boy. Yeah. I'd, I'd kind of like just walked away from it. Yeah. Yeah. You find a really interesting, cause there's, there is that really interesting link that people like Alan Watts and others have done, which is to kind of like bring East and West together in a really interesting, mm -hmm. in a really interesting way. Yeah. But yeah, Jesus would say, you're not hearing me. You're like, this is seeds. I'm scattering seed and some of it's landing on different, and you don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, they don't understand what he's saying. Yeah. Like there is a way of, yeah, there is a way of reading Christianity that's not about belief even in God or anything like that, but that actually, you know, you're potentially, it is bearing witness to whether he exists or not, bearing witness to some event of encountering the gaze. So for example, it, Jesus was, you had very hard push to make a belief out of what he said. He said different things to different mm -hmm. people, told parables, all of that. But there was this weird sense in which um, he seemed to confront people with themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what that's what he was a master at. He was, this, it, 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 now in psychoanalysis, they systematize this, but is how do you confront, how do I confront myself? And I can't do it on my own because everything about me is defended against it. My consciousness is defended against it. I think that I love my mum when I dream about her, something terrible happening to her or whatever. So maybe I don't love her. Maybe I'm angry mm. with her or I'm angry with a friend, but I don't even know it. Like I am in such self-deception. Mm. And so what we need is our places in our lives. I call them deserts in the oasis, quiet places where we are confronted with ourselves and that confrontation is always a trauma. So the traumatic confrontation with yourself, but that traumatic confrontation with yourself is enough to transform you and bring healing or the cure or salvation or whatever. And I do think that there's, an, there's a way of reading Christianity that is about um, uh, engendering a traumatic encounter with yourself. Hmm. 
Okay, so how does all of this come move uh, down into yes. practicalities as far as so obviously if you're offended you want to join a mob of sorts yeah uh, or you want to really just give it to somebody online in their comment section or whatever yeah there's obviously like you can recognize what's going on and how this is really about yourself is if there's a kernel of uh, of pain if there's a kernel of really strong emotion good clue like Probably about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but what about from the other side? Like, what about, does this impact people who get hurt online? Not just have been canceled, but like when people say things to you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and actually being a public figure today, I think it's very dangerous for people to be a public figure if they, if they don't know how their desire is enmeshed in the public world. So when you're attacked, it can be painful if you don't if you don't realize that you know there is a certain uh projection that's happening, it can be it can be painful. And mm-hmm. so um like if if that's what you're talking about, yeah, there's partly, you know, I, I bear in mind that I, I bring myself into the public world and I'm enmeshed in the public world and other people are doing that. And um Sometimes I have to listen to critique and go, okay, what's what's good in that? How can that kind of improve who I am? But also, you know, what's going on here that is that is within them that they're working yeah. with, and those in, those are interesting things. Like my big thing is, and I'll see what you think about this, but is that the toxicity of the other is always a threat to us. So we, we, our common sense thing is that the other is someone who I either want to convert, right? There's basically four things, right? I either want to make them into me, so consume them, conversion. You've got a weird belief or practice. I want to bring you into my social body, consume you, make you part of my social body. If I can't do that, I want to spit you out. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of avoid you at all costs. You can be over there in that country and do your weird stuff. Or the third (laughs) is, um, the third is uh, uh, tolerance, where yeah we can mm. we can operate in the same space but just keep your weirdness your toxicity to yourself mm. those weird beliefs you have and then the fourth which is very common is well beneath all our differences we're all the same right beneath all the separate rivers there is a, an ocean that we all pull from now i don't like any of these right <laughs> i think they're all awful right <laughs> terrible the third fourth one especially right the first yeah it's the worst of all um it's the last ditch attempt at avoiding the toxicity of the other because the first three <laughs> the first three i'm right and you're wrong and the fourth we're both right let's have tea and biscuits but um the truly traumatic thing about the other is not that they're other to me it's that they expose my otherness to myself so when I see myself through your eyes and you're some, you come from some different culture and I see myself through your eyes, at first you're the weirdo, but then I see myself through your eyes and I'm like, no, I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. Like my beliefs and practices and my culture are a little bit strange and that's terrifying. So I'm more terrified at encountering my own toxicity than yours. So I want to get rid of you at all costs. So what I want to do is go like, how do we create communities where we actually enjoy the what's the alterity or the otherness of the other? We enjoy the the kind of difference that we are to ourselves and to others. Like we enjoy that 
back and forth. Because if we don't find a healthy way of saying it, there's a guy, Kevin, who said this to me the other day in this class I was doing. Um, and he said, like, if we don't find a healthy way to disagree, we will find profoundly unhealthy ways. Because we, we kind of need the back and forth. Because we're social creatures, I would argue that we need um, the obstacle of the other. We need the, the tension that this iron, you know, as iron sharpens iron, there are sparks. We need the sparks. But if we avoid the sparks, if we try to surround ourselves by people who think like us, see the world like us, we, you know, we only read books that we agree with, what will happen is not that we will, you know, kind of become more isolated. It's that we'll have more outbursts. We'll find unhealthy ways to generate the tension that we haven't found in healthy ways. So take a Hollywood star who's got everything. So there's no tension in her life. And she's caught shoplifting in Target. And you're going, why is she shoplifting in Target? Well, because if you haven't got healthy forms of tension in your life, you're going to find unhealthy ways to bring the tension back. So I think a lot of cancel culture, here's my theory, is that a lot of cancel culture is, um, is what would be the word, is encouraged or amplified in communities of the same. The more you have a community that values an ideological purity, so mm -hmm. purity cultures, the more you will find cancel culture, mm. which is, which is mm -hmm. kind of against common sense because you'll kind of almost think that the more, you know, um, you know, the more you're kind of... Uh, the more you look for the same, you'll let the other go. But well, maybe it's not against common sense, but yes, the more you have a purity culture, I would say, the more you'll have cancel culture. And that's what you said at the beginning with right. creationism. The more you want to purify the view, the more <sighs> angry you get at anyone who disagrees slightly with you. And in some ways, a person in my context who would have actually believed in gap theory probably would have been seen as weirder than somebody who like was just a full evolutionist or like... A hundred percent. Some other tribe that has yeah. a myth about Gongor, the, the yes. Gongor is like almost Gongor. It's funny. Uh, That's right. I mean, Freud called it the narcissism of small differences. Actually, it's it, the closer the difference, the more it explodes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which yeah. was what you, isn't that part of uh, the whole like, yeah, eating your own. Thing. Yes. So, that, so the people who get most damaged by cancel culture are ironically the ones who are most invested in it. If you look at people who are not libidinally invested in cancel culture, they rarely get uh, damaged as much. Um, they can either, it washes off them or whatever, but the ones who are quite libidinally invested in it mm. often end up being a victim of the very thing that they themselves mm -hmm. were part of. So that's, this is why I, I really like, there's a philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas, Jewish thinker, and he, most of his work is based on the idea of the other, the importance of what he calls alterity, that we need to, and he, he actually says that the face of the other says, do not murder me. This is a beautiful phrase where he says, every time you look at a face, it's saying something, mm. even if it doesn't speak. And what it's saying is, do not murder me. Mm. Do not abuse me. Do not objectify me. Do not reduce me to some sort of like mere thing in the world. And Levinas, in fact, Levinas is a beautiful definition of atheism and theism. Uh, a very Jewish kind of notion because it's nothing to do with belief in a God. <laughs> um, he says the theist is one who opens themselves up to hear that cry and to respond to that cry. And the atheist is the one who closes themselves to that cry. And now he doesn't mean, and also he doesn't believe in God or whatever. He says, no, no, no. If you hear the cry of the other 
and you feel yourself entangled with that cry, then you are uh, exhibiting the heart of the Jewish faith, that the heart of the Jewish notion of a relationship with Yahweh. Um, and if you don't, even no matter what you believe, you can say, I believe in God and I do this, and you can have all your right beliefs, but if you're closed off to that cry in the face of the other, whoever that other is, um, then there's something that, that you're cutting yourself off from the ground of being, basically. Hmm. It's quite a nice kind of interesting approach. I'm not very Levinasian, but I do like how his approach is the opposite of a lot of today where we want to surround ourselves with the same. He's always going, no, no, no. That the real, the real grist of life, the real enjoyment of life is when you encounter the other and the other in the other and the other in yourself. Hmm. Part of that's beautiful and part of it, I'm like, I mean, that's not how... An atheist, I'm sure, would like oh, to yeah. be described. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, <laughs> yeah, I totally, absolutely. When I say that, I feel exactly the same. Yeah. Like, but when you hear it, as, when you realize that Levinas is like he's a Jewish philosopher, but not a theist himself, or a, mm -hmm. I don't think, not a, not a, doesn't believe in some sort of, you know, I don't think an ultimate kind of being or anything. What he's kind of going is, it's similar to Paul Tillich, actually, where Paul Tillich says that he calls it the God beyond God. Paul Tillich says, and it's not about belief in a being. He says that religion is ultimately attempting to ground you in a experience of ultimate concern is what he says. So, but yeah, but it kind of gets weird because suddenly the definitions change, but this happens also in psychoanalysis. In psychoanalysis, when people talk about the masculine and feminine, for example, they don't mean male or female, or when they talk about the mother, they don't. Like, it's funny when you see these academic disciplines use words but in really weird technical ways mm -hmm. that don't fit with how we use them in everyday life. Yeah. So yeah, that was a good point to make is like, if someone's here and I go like, you know, you know, I'm an atheist and I don't interpret it, but, but theist would be just as annoyed. You go like, Hey, you're saying I'm not a theist and I believe in God. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. Mm. So yeah, as I think about, I mean, kind of backtracking a oh, little yeah. bit to the, um, how to bring this, how to embody this sort of awareness of, of how our ontology and how our uh, projecting and all of it affects our interactions with each other and the way we see each other, the way we engage with trying to change things in the world. Um, it can get layered. And, and the more you practice it, the more you practice becoming conscious and you find like ways of looking at what's really going on, whether through therapy or whether through mindfulness or, you know, whatever the spiritual practices or th that you're engaged in to like bring things to the light. Uh, it does, uh, there's, there can be layers. Cause I was thinking as someone who's, like I said, they also at the beginning made people angry on more than one occasion online. I can look, it does help me on some level to, to be able to know this, when they're mad, it's really about them. There's one aspect that that's true, and that kind of softens the blow. There's kind of a like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but there's also, if you, if you stop there, I think. Yeah, if you stop there, it's not good. Because there's right. also something of you that's in it. Like exactly. you're, you're both enmeshed. Yeah, you can't say, Father, forgive them because, you know, we're not Jesus. <laughs> we're, we're not pure. So it's working out that. <laughs> yeah. The, so it's also like, enmeshment. what am I getting? By consistently pissing off people on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of thrill am I getting? Yeah. And 
you don't have to moralize it. This is what I love about yeah. the existential kink thing. It's like, there's no need to think that that's bad. Yeah. I'm getting a kick out of pissing people off. And there's no reason to think it's bad that you're projecting your, your shit onto somebody else. Yeah. There's not an inherent morality to that. I don't think yeah. it's mostly, um, I mean, yeah, from a philosophical angle, first and foremost, it's just trying to understand how the ontology is. It's how to understand how it works. So yeah, when people get into the morality too quick, you realize, no, we're just trying to work out why, how, what's the, why is it that we are enmeshed it, what, what's the what's the mechanism? So yeah, this is partly just understanding. We're all part of this. We're all we're all guilty of it, <laughs> and it's not something to be guilty of. It's just the way it is, you know. Yeah, and then you when you see it, I mean, the, I think I think the power of it, and have been experiencing the effects of this, um, is when you see the shadow side of it, and you embrace it as part of yourself, and there's like a healing in that way that that thing that you've tried to be like that part of yourself that you've tried to pull away and put over there to distance from yourself has been integrated mm. and and accepted you're 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 free because now you can see oh okay i i want to feel if, if it's if i want to feel self-righteous um and i think that i can will i actually will that feeling that i'm seeking actually be best experienced by shitting on somebody on Facebook. Is mm. that really what's going to like get me feeling like I'm okay? Yeah. Like that I'm acceptable and worthy and loved. Is that really the best avenue to get what I'm looking for? Yeah. And most of the time, no, it's yeah. not, it's yes. not going to be the more you see it, but not because you've moralized it, not because you've made a rule. Don't do that. Yeah. I'm bad. If I do that, it's just like, there's actually more effective ways of getting what you want. Yeah. And when, when you experience that, so to do a concrete example, right, say I'm attacking someone who has, uh, you know, really views that I really don't like about some uh, kind of moral issue for, for me, right? And so I'm attacking them. And I genuinely also believe that they've got a view of the world that's not good, right? But I'm attacking them. And then I realize, oh, like I'm a kind of attacking them, but I'm attacking my parents because my parents used to think like that and I used to think like that and actually, maybe I'm taking out kind of my frustrations, my repressed frustrations on this person, right? So I suddenly get the experience, the trauma of the gaze. What that means is not that I no longer kind of say anything to this person, but what I might do for argument's sake is I might go, listen, I'm sorry. I realize that, you know, these are issues that I have in my family and I'm still working this stuff through and I think I was, you know, taking it on you a bit. Now, the other person, that is going to lead them to be much more likely to go, oh, well, listen, I totally understand. It's fine. You know, sometimes these things get out of hand and we all get a bit angry, hot under the collar on, on social media, right? They, it gives them the invitation to do that. And then I can say to them, yeah, and, you know, the truth is, like, I still think this isn't a a good way of thinking and um, I've, I kind of really want to work this stuff through. Then the other person goes, well, yeah, you know, I might not be right. And suddenly the whole kind of tenor of the conversation has changed. And although that won't happen every time, you would not believe how much it happens. It's like, it's like, it's, it almost seems like a caricature, like, oh, that would never happen. But actually we all know that if we get into arguments with our partner and we very soon we're all arguing like we're world experts and as soon as one person says listen I'm sorry like I don't really know what I'm talking about I got a bit I got a bit carried mm -hmm. away there 
the other person is less likely to go, yes, I won. Right. Yeah, screw you. <laughs> uh, they're more likely to go, oh, yeah, no, and I'm the same. And then, and then a productive conversation can happen. Mm. So even from a strategic point of view, this notion of you shall know the truth of the gaze and, you, and that truth will set you free, is it's not just personally useful. It's actually strategically the way in which progress occurs. Mm. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. Cancel culture solved. <laughs> What's that? Cancel culture solved. solved. Yes, that's right. We have, we have canceled cancel culture. Uh, I have a friend, he's a psychoanalyst, and actually he said to me, um, he said, as a psychoanalyst, it's funny because we're all censors and, and we, we all are cancel culture people. And he says, like, when, he says, when I work with people in the clinic, he says, they're all canceling some part of themselves. So they're mm-hmm. all censoring parts of themselves. And that is then you know, obviously being expressed in their lives. And he says, and my job is to, you know, help them see what they're canceling in themselves and what they're fighting. And that, you know, ultimately leads to a healthier person and also a person with healthier relationships and ultimately then a better citizen. Mm. So, yeah. Well, I'm happy that my instincts were that Pete needs to talk about this. Oh, I was really pleased when I saw your text, man. Thank you (laughs) for inviting me along. I love this is exactly, yeah, this is exactly the part of the conversation that I feel like we needed. So thank you. Well, thank you. That was fun. Oh, man. Is that all right?